Hey, we've been um, really working our way on this quest to be holy as God calls us to be holy. And it, it's not something that's really uh, particularly easy as we try to wrap our heads around what that looks like, what that means. It's, it's not that easy of a concept for us to really get into, but yet what God calls us to do and how God calls us to do it isn't as hard as it sounds. You know what it takes? It takes a heart that's obedient to the voice of God. We learned that. We learned that the part of being holy as God is holy is being obedient to the things of God. That's it. Look, if you can obey what God says, you will live in the holiness that God calls you to live in. He also kind of throws in there, the greatest commandment, to love, your, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is holy living. Also to love your neighbor as yourself. Last week, we saw that what holy living consists of is that, that God wants to set us free from the incapacitating things of our past that continue to remind us that either we're not good enough, we'll never be good enough, we are not smart enough, We are not good-looking enough. Our uh, past experiences are dragging us down. That's what our past does. But just as Jesus came to Peter, he comes to us and he confronts the very failures of our lives, the tragic events that we live in, and the habitual sinful behavior that has hooks on us. And it says to us, this is the way you are. But Jesus says, I'm not going to let that define your life. It is no longer who you are because you are a child of God. You are no longer a slave to that sin. You are no longer a slave to your past. You are no longer a slave to fear. When you have your receptors healed by the Holy Spirit, they are actively aware of the manifest presence of Jesus. And when Jesus' manifest presence comes... He will give you a new name. That new name could be love child. That new name could be courageous. That new name could be conqueror. That new name could be um, saint. He's got a name for you and he calls you by your name. And that's different than what the great enemy of our soul does. Because the enemy of our soul, he knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. And he wants to define Your life by your sin. Whereas our God, who loves us deeply, He knows our sin, but He is going to call us by our name because He says, you are greater than your sin. You've been healed of your sin. You have more going for you than you could ever think or imagine. I believe in you, so believe in yourself. That's what Jesus says to us. The problem, (laughs) we have this whole thing going on. We hear the words of our Heavenly Father speaking truth into our life. And He tells us, if you listen to me, your life will never be the same. But the problem is that we have this thing going on. I think it's the, the, we're exhausted. We're living hectic lives. We're so hurried that we rarely have time to hear the voice of the Spirit speaking to us. I think that the irony of being a Christ follower 
is being involved in ministry, doing really good things for the kingdom of God, serving other people out of a sincerity of our heart, giving generously back to God what he asks us to do, actively participating in our faith community. But the problem we have, the irony is that we get so worked up, so busy, so blisteringly hectic and hurried that when someone asks us what God has been saying to us recently, we either don't have an answer for him because we haven't heard from God, or maybe the answer we give to him is a cover-up because we feel ashamed by our lack of attention to God. God doesn't bring that shame to you. That's not from God. That's from the enemy. But we, we somehow pile it onto ourselves, and we think that, that we should be doing this stuff, stuff and so we are, are self-perceived as deficient in spiritual growth. And so we make up a story and go, well, God's been telling me that you owe me a hundred bucks or something like that. And the reason we do that is because we're trying to fool ourselves and say everything's okay in our connecting with God or we're trying to kid God that, the, that on this issue, but God's going like, come on, man, just be honest. Just be honest about where you are and who you are. Just be honest that you are hurried, that you are over busy, that you are living a hectic life. God, you can't fool God on that. He knows it. But if you were to read through Paul's letters to the various churches, you'd see that Paul has one continual desire in his prayer for the churches. And he believes that this is the most important thing for people. He, had, he, he simply believes it's the most important thing God could do for the church. For the church. The church is the people, not the building, right? That one thing. That one thing that Paul prayed for for every church is that they would know him better. He says that's more important than anything. That you know God better. In Ephesians 1, Paul says that the only way that will happen is when the eyes of our heart are enlightened. Biblically, the heart is the control center of the entire self. It is the origin, source, or fountain of one's core commitments, deepest loves, and most foundational hopes that control our feelings, thinking, and behavior. To have the eyes of the heart enlightened with a particular truth means to have it penetrate and grip us so deeply that it changes the whole person. You're never the same after that. In other words, we may know that God is holy, but when our heart's eyes are enlightened to that truth, then we not only understand it cognitively, but emotionally we find God's holiness wondrous and beautiful And we willingly avoid attitudes and behavior that would displease and dishonor God. But I think one of the main reasons that we don't see that happening or seem to be experiencing it in our own lives, that kind of cognitive and emotional connection with God, is that we have flooded our lives and receptors with so much static noise of this society. And there's so much turbulence going on in our hearts, in our souls, and in our minds that God gets drowned out. We can't hear him. 
There's too much stuff going on, and we can't hear God's voice. In the Old Testament, Israel had a really bad habit. They would, for a number of years, 40, 50 years, they would fall in line and they would follow God. They would be obedient to everything that God said to do. Then they'd get a new leader. And the new leader would go like, eh, who wants to do that? That's no fun. Let's go worship this idol over here because that's going to be way more fun. Because what you're going to do is you're going to bring your little kids and you're going to cut them in half and offer them as a sacrifice. Isn't that going to be fun? And Israel's going, yeah. Let's do that. And so they go off, and they would start to do really stupid things, and God would often have to, to uh, do something dramatic to get his people's attention to bring them back into relationship with him. And in, in 1 Kings chapter 18, we have that whole scenario kind of going on. Because after Israel had gone for more than three years without rain, as the judgment for their idolatry... Elijah confronts the evil king Ahab and challenges him to a spiritual showdown. And so what he does is he says, hey, let's meet, bring all of Israel. We'll meet up on Mount Carmel. You bring the 450 Bala priests and the 400 priests of Asherah up there and I'll come and then we'll have a showdown. And so all of Israel gets up there all these priests, there's, there's 900 of these priests, or 850 of them, and they're going to do their thing. And what, he's, what the, the, the challenge, the spiritual challenge is, you take whichever one of these two bulls you want, I'll take the other one, then you cut them up, and you put them on the altar to sacrifice them to your God. But here's the catcher. No fire. Whoever's God brings the fire and burns up the offering... That is the God of Israel. And the people of Israel said, sounds fair. Let's test it out. And so, you know, Elijah, being fair-minded and all the rest of that, he goes, you guys go first. So they built their altar, and they put the bull on there. They put wood and the bull on there. And then they started doing their little dance and their little chanting and everything else. And there's, get this, 900 of these guys dancing around up there doing all kinds of crazy Nut job stuff. And, and, and Elijah's going like, nothing yet, fellas. At noon, he kind of gets to be one of those guys that, that you really don't like when you're playing against him in sports. He's going like, hey, your God wears army boots. <laughs> you might want to shout a little bit louder. He might be in the bathroom and can't hear you. Maybe he's on vacation. He's taking a little bit of a... Tr- I know. He's sleeping and you've got to wake him up. So you guys need to shout a little bit louder. So they did. And then they took spears and knives and they started to cut themselves so that they were really bleeding a lot of blood. And at the time of the evening sacrifice, nothing had happened. Big surprise, right? <laughs> if you didn't see that one coming, you haven't been around much, I'll tell you. So... 
then Elijah says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this altar that once stood here. I'm going to rebuild this altar out of these 12 stones representing each one of the tribes of Israel. And then I'm going to place wood on top of that. And then I'm going to take my pieces of the bull and I'm going to place it on top of that. But just to make it fair, I'm going to have these guys over here take these large jars, 12 of them, and dump water on them. We put a trench around the bottom and totally soak the whole thing with water until the trench is full of water. And then here's what uh, Elijah prayed. He prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And God did what Bala could not do. The fire of the Lord came down and it consumed not just the, the bull, the flesh of the bull and the wood. It consumed the rocks And it licked up every piece of water that was laying on the ground. And it was completely consumed with the fire of God. And the people of Israel fell on their faces and they worshipped and said, The Lord, He is God. And then Elijah goes like, Now you see those guys over there, 450 of those Balagal prophets? Take them down to the Kidron Valley and I want you to kill, we're going to kill every last single one of them. So they did, because that was according to Exodus chapter 20, that you're supposed to kill false prophets. So that's what they did. They went down and killed them all. Well, now, Ahab, the king, he's not very happy about all this. So he goes home to his wife. It might have been their anniversary, too. And he goes, honey, I got some really bad news for you. Well, what's the bad news? You know, Elijah, that, that prophet of God, yeah, he killed all your priests today. What? Send him a message. You tell that Elijah. This is chapter 19 of 1 Kings. But she says, you tell that Elijah the same thing that he's done to my priests, I will do to him before the end of this day. Or may the gods, my gods, take care of me. And so the message came to Elijah. And Elijah did what every um, man should do when you've got a woman who wants to kill you. (laughs) He ran and hid in the desert. Because he was a man of God. And he just killed 450 priests. But one angry, wicked queen, and he goes running for the hills. Now, let me tell you something. There is a real life principle involved in that whole story. And this one's for free, okay? You don't have to put anything in the offering for this one. The real life principle out of this is that when we're involved in ministry with God, sometimes we have this great moments of ministry with God. And after we have a great moment of ministry with God, the next day, we're kind of like down here. We're a little bit blue. We're a little bit depressed. We're really kind of dragging our hiney around. Because you can't maintain that level of ministry all the time. God never created us to live at that place. And so what happens with Elijah is he's already a little bit depressed from his great 
you know, moment where the manifest presence of God shows up in fire and licks everything up and, and people get killed and people are praising God. I mean, what kind of a church service would that be, right? We're going to kill a bunch of people and then praise God about it. <laughs> Woohoo! Wind River Community Church, come and join us. <laughs> so he gets, you know, Elijah, he's all kind of. Oh, man, he's like, I'm just a mess over this thing. He's got this great victory for God going on. And so he takes off, and he goes running into the desert to get away from Jezebel. And he gets, you know, a little ways out there, and he comes to a broom tree, and it's got shade. And so he kind of sits under it, and he starts to complain to God about all kinds of stuff. That's what happens when you're depressed. You complain a lot. But the great thing is God, God didn't chastise him. He said, shut up and take a nap, would you? <coughs> so Elijah did that. He laid down and went to sleep. And the next thing he knows, an angel of the Lord is tapping him on the shoulder and going like, hey, Elijah, wake up. Here's some bread, fresh bread. I just made it for you. Eat the bread. Drink this water I got for you. Then take another nap. And Elijah goes, okay. So he ate, he drank, and he went back to sleep. The second time, the angel of the Lord came to him and goes, Hey, sleepyhead, time to get up. Here's a little more bread, and here's some more water, because you're going to need it, because you're going to go on a great journey after you eat this. And this food, this water, will sustain you for the next 40 days. And he takes off, and he, after he eats and he drinks from what God gave to him, he takes off for 40 days, and he goes across the desert into the wilderness, and he comes to the Mount Mount Hebron. And it's at Mount Hebron that he, he, it is the mountain of God. And he goes to that mountain and he walks up and he finds a cave. And that is where he's going to lodge. And as he's in the cave, God says to him, come out of the mountain because I'm going to go and I'm going to meet with you. So Elijah says, okay. So he goes out to meet with God. First Kings uh, chapter 19, it says, Go out and stand before me on the mountain. The Lord told him, and Elijah stood there. The Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. Then when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And the voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Did you get that? See, here's what happens is, is that we far too often, we're looking for God to come in the in the mighty wind rush, in the big wind, we're looking for God and, and to hear a voice from God and to hear what God's saying in this big event of the wind or as the earthquakes or as all this other stuff takes place, we're looking for God and it is so noisy and so hurried and so busy that when the quiet voice of the Lord speaks, I 
is the Spirit of God is speaking in a gentle whisper. And he's calling us by name. And here's what he's saying. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Might be a good idea to come up with an answer. You know, in Psalms 46, the psalmist, he wrote this. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, a lot of times when we read this verse, we think it's calling us to a place of inactivity, to be really quiet, to not say anything, to to get our mind to go into neutral so that we can know God. Light some candles, a little bit of incense, you know, whatever it is. But that's, that's not the picture. What I want to do is I'm, I'm going to read that whole, that's the whole psalm. It's like, it's not quite like Psalm 119. Do you know Psalm 119? The longest psalm in the Bible. But it's not like Psalm 18 either. Three verses long. The shortest psalm in the Bible. Psalm 46. Let me read it to you. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, he will not, therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Huh, kind of sounds like Elijah standing in the mountain. Goes on. There's a rivers whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease To the end of the earth, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Here it is. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, I want you to notice something really important about this psalm. Is that as David is writing it, he's writing it as from his perspective. But at verse Now, verse 10, God comes and speaks in the first person. Be still and know that I am God. Now, you know, the the thing is, I could just trip and knock myself out. The the thing of it is, is that we take a look at this this picture of, of what God's calling us, and we get a different view now with the whole thing being read in the context of it. The spiritual calm that God commands does not come from lack of troubles. That's kind of what the falling rocks and the foaming sea kind of refer to because we do have troubles in our life, but the calm that God's calling us to doesn't come from that. It doesn't come because we have somehow created space in our lives to get quiet and still before God. It derives from a steady, deep reflection on how, on the ways God has intervened intervened in history on behalf of his people. It's amazing that 
that God does that. It's amazing that God says, even in the middle of the war, even in the middle of the mountains falling, even with all this turmoil going on around you, I want you to be still and know that I am God. So as the world seems to crumble around us, as your life seems to be more hectic, when the pace of life goes from busy to hurried, the call from Scripture is, don't flinch in faith in God. Stand still, not because of a self-made confidence, not because you're the most composed person in the face of disaster, not because you've seen it all, but because you know that in order for your soul to be satisfied in God, for you to encounter the manifest presence of God, in order for you to be set apart by God and for God, you will need to be still. Or in other words, you will have to stop striving. You will have to let go and you will have to surrender all the hurriedness of your life to God. That's what it means to be still. It doesn't mean to quit doing anything. It means to surrender all that noise to God so that we can hear His voice over the top of it. Let me ask you a question. Just, you know, put your hand up if you feel this way. Tired, weary, and worn out. Put it up there. Yeah. Welcome to life, right? I mean, every parent that has kids under the age of five should have put their hand up. Any parent that has teenagers is probably passed out on the floor right now. We're worn out. And Jesus totally understands the whole ordeal about being busy to the point of exhaustion. Jesus gets it. You know, he's not immune to this stuff. It's not like he's never had to face any of the stuff that we face, because he has. Matter of fact, it was, it was it, the story that's told in Mark's gospel, also found in Matthew and Mark, or I mean Matthew and Luke, which portrays an extraordinary, uh, extremely busy day where Jesus was healing people. He was casting out demons. He was doing teaching and preaching all day long. And at the end of the day, he was exhausted So he and overwhelmed with what had been going on. And so what he did is he requested a boat from his disciples and said, take me to the other side where I can get away from this and I can get some rest. We all need to rest. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. We all need to go take a break right now and I'm exhausted, so you guys get the boat and take me. And so they said, okay, we'll do that. So um, on the journey, though, the Sea of Galilee is, is just a crazy thing. These storms come up in a heartbeat, and they're fierce storms. And so there's a huge storm that rolls in. And the disciples are afraid for their lives. These are guys that have been on that lake most of their lives in boats, and they've seen the storms. But here they are now, these fishermen, fearful for their life. It must be a really bad storm. And they looked for Jesus for help. And guess what? They found him fast asleep from exhaustion in the stern of the boat. <laughs> I mean, I've been on the ocean when it's been really bad. There's no way I was sleeping. I was doing other things. I was feeding the fish. <laughs> Chum. Mark 4.38, Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? Jesus woke up. 
he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was great calm. And then Jesus asked him, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The translation of be still taken from the Greek is this. Shh, hush, 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 shh. You, you know what it's like? We've all had little, you know, if you've had little kids, you know how it is when they get hurt or left out and they get just beside themselves and they're crying and they come running in because you're the parent and you're supposed to bring some sense of calm and they crawl up in your lap and they're <laughs> And they can hardly breathe. <laughs> and you're going, hush, hush now. It's okay. Hush. It's okay. It's going to be fine. Take it easy. And what are you trying to do? You're trying to instill calmness into your child so you can tell them to suck it up, buttercup, because that's the way life is. <laughs> Hush. Our modern word for that is shut up. That's what Jesus said to the wind and the waves. Shut up. And they did. And it got calm. Here's where most of us uh, fall. We just don't know how to stop and find rest for our souls. We want it so bad, but we either think We are too valuable to the ministry of God that I can't take a break from doing what God's called me to do. I can't stop doing what I'm doing because it's not going to work without me. Or we think that the things that we are doing are going to bring the greatest and deepest satisfaction to our soul so we keep pushing on only to find that these things bring dissatisfaction and our souls are dying on the vine. They're withering up. And you know what? Jesus actually provides the answer to our need for soul care. Found in Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly at heart. And you will find rest for your soul. Rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want you to get the picture of this. Jesus did not say you're going to find rest for your body. Jesus said you will find rest for your soul. Jesus isn't saying pull up a park bench, take a seat, sit down, take a break. I've got this. I'll carry the load. I'll do it. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, come over here, get rid of that thing that's holding you back, holding you down, the thing that is drying up your soul, that very thing that is is just killing you right now. Take that off and throw it away. Put my yoke, because I've got half the yoke, You take the other half, and then you follow my lead. Let me lead you. And here's the deal. I'm going to carry the bulk of this. 
I'm going to do the heavy lifting. All you have to do, if you want to experience my glory, know my manifest presence, is to get yoked up with me, let me haul the load, and you enjoy all the benefits of it. And your soul will be revived. Your soul will be revived. You see, what Jesus is doing, he's giving them a word picture, his disciples, when he's talking about this, because what they do is they would always have these two ox tied together. Now, two mature ox, when they're tied together, they can do a lot of work together. But what they do to train one of the young ones is they take a younger ox and they put him with a mature one so that the mature one teach him how to do the work. And that yoke that they put on, on one side it's bigger for the big ox and it's smaller for the small ox. And the big ox does the heavy lifting, but he teaches the young ox how to pull and how to work. And that's the picture Jesus is giving to us. He's saying your soul is going to be at rest. You will find peace. You will find yourself in all kinds of joy if you just saddle up and hook up with me. You go ahead and try and carry that burden by yourself. See how that gets you because at the end of the field, you'll have your nose in the dirt and you will probably be dead, spiritually speaking. How often do we ask God for everything, but we don't stop to listen or be still? The act of being still and getting quiet becomes more of a challenge in our hectic world. The world asks us to be busy. God asks us to be still and receive love, peace, and guidance. It's God's past work that provides calm for our future work. When we look at what God's done in the past, we can trust him for what he'll do in the future. Know that he is God. That's what the psalm said. Know that he is God. Know it, not merely intellectually, but practically, spiritually, emotionally. He is your God. He is the ruler of kingdoms of this earth and the all-powerful creator of the universe. So be still because of what you know about God. We can take comfort in letting go and resting in God to provide help and strength and safety. Getting to that place requires practice and patience. And, you know, the prophet Isaiah says it another way. Here's what he says in chapter 40. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But, here it is, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They will, shr- they will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Are you weary? Are you bored out? Do you hear the voice of God? Is your soul being nourished? Are you being revived by the Spirit of God? Are you listening to what He says? Are you acting in obedience to where God is calling you? Because if you're not, you're going to be worn out. You're going to be weary. You're going to be like the youth that falls and faints. You will, the young men who fall exhausted, that will describe your life. But when you start to take into your moments, into your days, 
the, the thought that God says to be still and know that I am God. And that we would come and we will wait upon the Lord so that he will renew our strength. And that we come to Jesus and he is the one that says, saddle up your yoke with me and I will give revival to your soul. If you're not doing that, you are not living the way God had intended for you to live. You are spinning your wheels. You are in a hurried life. Your life is busier than God ever meant for it to be. And you are neglecting the very thing that God calls you to. And the thing you're neglecting is to be holy as I am holy. And what that means is to be special unto God, chosen, set apart, uncommon, belonging to God. And we just take ourselves and make ourselves available for God. But you can't do it if you're not setting yourself apart. If you do not hear what the psalmist is saying, to be still. If you're not taking into account what Isaiah says, is to wait. If you're not doing what Jesus says... Let, let me bring rest to your soul. You will find yourself continually, spiritually exhausted and unable to grow in your relationship with God. So what does God call us to do? <laughs> Repent. I love repentance. Don't you? If some of you going like, shut up. Don't want to hear it. Just don't want to hear it. Just be quiet. Now, don't say anything else. Well, let me tell you what repentance means. To repent is to have a complete change of mind, perspective, disposition, orientation, and motivation. When you're truly repentant, you will have a revolutionary change of mind that brings about a revolutionary change of heart that brings about a revolutionary change of conduct, that brings about revolutionary change of lifestyle. When repentance brings this kind of revolution to your soul, you will be entered into holy living, and your soul will be at rest with God, and you will mount up as on wings as eagles. You will run and not be weary, and you will walk and not be faint. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So here's my question. If you're really desirous to be holy, there needs to be a time when we stop struggling and hanging on to everything. We need to surrender. And that's what the repentance, that's really what we're talking about in repentance, is I'm going to surrender my hurriedness, my, my busyness. I want my soul revived and I need to surrender. And so this morning, if you found that you're so busy that you become hurried and your soul is in the danger of suffering from the effects of hurriedness, if your life schedule is so full that there is no time in it to hear the gentle whisper of God, you're at the point that life has sucked all of the joy out of you and you want to, and all you want to do is hide and disconnect even from the community of faith that God calls you to here is your chance to find rest for your soul. Come to the altar and meet with Jesus. Ask him to hit the reset button on your life so that you will live a life of joy, peace, fullness. That you will have soul rest. Come to Jesus. Stop striving. Stop the craziness. 
Surrender your life. Surrender your, your stillness to God so that you will know that He is God. And the way we simply do that in this church is as the worship, comes, worship team comes to lead us in the next couple of songs, God's saying, Jesus is saying, come up here, do it, get up out of seat, come up here and hit the reset button with God. Just say, I'm coming up here, Jesus, I'm coming up as an act of obedience to you and I'm going to say, I need to hit the reset button. And you can pray by yourself. The elders will come up. We'll have other people up here. If you want someone to pray with you, they will pray with you. If you, you still go like, I need healing of my soul. There is oil right here. And when you confess that, repent, as the Bible says, and we anoint you with healing, God will bring healing to your soul. James makes that promise. Confess your sin one to another that you may be healed. That's where healing starts. So, where's the worship team? They're all in the bathroom. Hey, Phil, get out of the nursery. Let the Spirit of God bring you to that place, okay? Now, I want to pray for you. Because I know that God's spoken to some of you. And the thing that you are doing right now is you're sitting there and you've already got the battle going on. I really don't need to go up front to have God minister to me. That's true. But if you come up front, God will minister deeper to you. Because you're saying, I am no longer afraid. I'm not a slave to fear. I can go up. I don't care what people think. Because I want to do business with God. Father, we thank you that you have brought us to the place where we can find that our souls not just are thriving. But they're thriving deeply because of who you are. Because we become still and know that you are God and that you are exalted among nations and that you are exalted in the earth. We want to come and even in the busyness of this weekend, God, with all the activities going on around us, revive our hearts, revive our souls. Help us to wait upon you. Help us to seek your face. Help us to know you like we've never known you before that we'd be able to lift your voice, our voice up, praise your name because of what you've done in our lives and